0: I do want Jesus to walk with me. As a matter of fact, nothing else can bring confidence in these times. And choosing Jesus above all other things, I'd rather have Jesus. Is this really the desire of our lives? This is what Christ is calling us to. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the nearness of your presence through your Holy Spirit, opened by the great condescension of your Son, reflecting who you are, showing us the desires of your heart. I pray now, Lord, bless us as we look for those revelations in your word. Help us to understand for the times in which we live the ever-present blessing of the simple and amazing gift of your gift of jesus now lord we put this message this time our times in your hands send your spirit now to both touch anoint transform and teach in jesus name amen You wouldn't be surprised if I were to talk to you with a message entitled, Survival in a Surveillance State. You wouldn't be surprised for me to talk with you about different countries around the world where we know a dictatorship is in place and surveillance and control through information about one's personal and private life are utilized as part of the apparatus to keep everyone in line. Writing in November of last year, Charlie Campbell tells about the surveillance state in China where it's estimated that they have 200 million closed caption televisions or television cameras to keep track of their one billion uh, citizens. He specifically speaks of Chongqing with a census of 15.35 million and 2.58 million surveillance cameras. He opens his article with a story about a woman waking early, going down to join a small group of other older women for a exercise class. In her hurry that morning, she drops her purse, which fortunately is seen by one of the surveillance cameras and taken by a police officer to lost and found. The article is bookended by two very positive stories from the Chinese point of view of how wonderful it is to have this security and this overarching sense of someone looking out for you. The purse is returned to its original owner and she is glad. Interestingly enough, China appears to be the leader in the artificial intelligence facial recognition technology, at least If not the leader, certainly racing to the forefront with other developed nations, especially the United States. They've developed technology so good that at 150 feet away, they can tell who you are by how you walk, even if they can't see your face. It turns out that white men are much easier to identify than women, especially women of color. Japanese scientists have developed a type of glasses that is designed to fool the technology. And he ends his story interacting with a shopkeeper in Beijing, actually in Chongqing. Shopper Li Hongmai sees only positives with this surveillance state. She says that the public CCTVs, closed caption television cameras right outside her convenience store didn't stop a spate of thefts. So she had six cameras installed inside the shop. Within days, she says, she nabbed the serial thief who had been pilfering milk from her shelves. And the article ends with this statement from Lai. She says, Chinese people don't care about privacy. We want security. It's still not enough cameras. We need more. Truth of the matter is, Americans are watched more than they know. We're being tracked. Some call it a surveillance capitalistic environment. It's not so much that it's about limiting our freedoms as much as it is tracking our habits, our appetites, our spending. Uh, Writing in what is a tracking pixel, uh, we get this summary. You probably don't know what a pixel is. Well, you say, sure, I know what a pixel is. That's how you define what the resolution is on my computer monitor, but there is a marketing pixel. These small units measure digital images and graphics that you see on websites. And when all these pixels join together, they form an image, a text, or a video that displays on a computer device. But if you're a marketer, you've also likely heard of tracking pixels. Tracking pixels are code snippets added to websites in order to gather information. They're crucial for marketers when it comes to uh, retargeting ads and improving conversion rates, and today, tracking pixels are used over the internet without most of us even realizing it. So what does it do? This snippet of code is added to your website to create a one-by-one pixel graphic. That's pretty little, you're not going to notice it. The tiny size makes it unlikely to be noticed by visitors, and tracking pixels are usually designed to blend in with your existing site or to be transparent, and when a user visits your site, the Traxing Pixel loads to collect information about them as they browse your website. What does it collect? Which pages they view? Which ads they clicked on? The opening system they use, the, the operating system they use, the type of device they use, the screen resolution they use, what time they visited, activities during a session, and your computer's IP address. That may surprise you, that may not. You're familiar with cookies where you are at least warned that you've gone to a site that they exist. Most of you are not familiar with the tracking pixel. And yet this is why when you get online to look at some item later on on another web page, that advertisement for that exact same item is going to come up along the sidebar of your website. And you sort of know and you've sort of known. But what you don't realize is how much they know. The New York Times tells us that health officials in Britain are building an app that would alert people who have come in contact with someone known to have the coronavirus. The project aims to adapt China's tracking efforts for countries wary of government surveillance. So we don't want exactly what the Chinese have. We want something different. But if you have this app on your phone, because they're using this GPS locating technology along with a wide network of information, they can tell you if in the course of your day you came into contact with someone who has the coronavirus. Wall Street Journal records this, as the country scrambled to control the rapidly spreading coronavirus, government agencies are putting in place or considering a range of tracking and surveillance technologies that test the limits of personal privacy. The technologies include everything from geolocation tracking that can monitor the locations of people, through their phones to facial recognition systems that can analyze photos to determine who might have come in contact with an individual who later tested positive for the virus, according to people familiar with the matter. In Shenzhen, China, just outside of Hong Kong, they have facial recognition software installed on many of the stoplights to where if you cross as a jaywalker, Before you get to the other side, you've been recognized as a person and publicly shamed for breaking the law. Some are suggesting that 5G technology is not so much about enhanced phone ability as it is the backbone, the bridge for an enhanced artificial intelligence and surveillance system that would allow for things like the massive influx of information that's needed to keep this kind of track of people. Just a little over a year ago, as I was looking through my AARP magazine, uh, they were dealing with the idea of how much data are you leaving behind, how much personal information are you sharing. And in one part of the, uh, of the magazine, they were, they were referencing to the idea of having one of these Google devices or smart speakers in your home. Doc Searles, editor-in-chief at Linux Journal, calls a smart speaker a personal data fire hose squirting from your house. Now, I don't think the word squirting fits with a fire hose, gushing, pouring, whatever the word might be. So actually this morning, I'd like to invite one of my associates to come up here because he had an interesting experience with one of these devices. One of your relatives bought you this device, Pastor Dennis, and uh, you used to uh, enjoy uh, almost trying to annoy this device. Tell me about some of the questions you'd ask.
1: Well, you're right. My son did buy us the uh, device and uh, the Google Home uh, device. And, you know, I'd ask it questions about who is Jesus, what day is the Sabbath. I'd ask it about the weather and different things. And I'd ask it, are, are you telling me the truth, Google? And it would give me this spiel about how honest it is. I'd even ask it at times, are you spying on us, Google? All oh, your security is of the utmost importance. And uh, one day a, a friend had come over and I was uh, sharing with him some of the questions I'd ask. And I was asking uh, Google these questions and we're going through the whole spiel. And, and my wife would tell me, Dad, D- stop messing with that thing. Like it was an actual person. Right, right. And, and I just, I said, you know what, honey? I said, it makes me laugh. And, you know, you have to say, hey, Google, to get it to talk to you now.
0: Now, it's supposed to be that way because by design, this device is listening for commands.
1: That's right.
0: And in some of the early days of this device, they say in the beta format before it was really out in the public, it was taking in uh, scores of information, Mm -hmm. scores of chapters of people's lives, that they didn't know about. Supposedly that, that was fixed. So this is a very important point. You're supposed to say, hey, Google. That's right. So you said this thing makes you laugh.
1: That's right, and I had stopped talking to it because now I'm entering a dialogue with my wife and I'm still talking with my friend. And this guest, yeah. Yeah, my guest, and, and, I, and she, she told me that. I said, well, it makes me laugh. Now, and, and my wife just reminded me, this thing laughed at me at that moment. But it did not laugh in a woman's voice. It laughed in a man's voice. And how'd that make you feel? Now, that just weirded me out. My friend was shocked. My wife said her hair on her arm stood up, and I just looked at her and said, Honey, I think it's time to unplug it and throw it out in the yard. All right, so (laughs) this chapter, perhaps the fire hose had been... uh, had been pouring information about your
0: life that you don't know about. We're not as conspirators here this Mm -hmm. afternoon, but it sure made you feel a little bit uncertain, uh, slightly understated about having that device in your home.
1: That's right, it's no longer in our home now. All right, thank you for sharing with me. You know,
0: through the years, we've been getting a little bit more of a sense of what's going on. As a matter of fact, in 2010, The Atlantic gave a full video reproduction of an interview that had taken place with the former CEO of Google. Now at that point in time, Eric Schmidt was the CEO. And writing into Business Insider, uh, Nick Saint would say this. He would say, CEO Eric Schmidt really has a knack for expressing relatively benign ideas in a way that makes him and his company look incredibly creepy. The Atlantic posted a video of the full interview with Eric Schmidt about the creepy line And it's chock full of unsettling sound bites. In particular, he had the following to say on privacy. With your permission, you give us more information about you, about your friends, and we can improve the quality of your searches. We don't need you to type at all. And here's the creepy line. We know where you are. We know where you've been. And we can more or less know what you're thinking about. He goes on to say, that sounds absolutely terrifying. And it's too bad. Eric is clearly extremely bright and has a lot of interesting things to say in this interview about technology, the rise of China, the role of lobbyists in crafting le- legislation, and more. He's just not very good at choosing his words. Some of you may know that last year, Eric Snowden published his biography, Permanent Record. Uh, he's, he's an outlaw with our country. Uh, whatever perspective you have on his actions as He broke the law and shared a variety of information that was classified. His journey of conscientious conviction that brought him to the place that America should know the broad strokes of information gathering that are going on in regards to our personal and private lives. It turned him into a fugitive on planet Earth. Uh, His passport was denied, was revoked in midair. He lived for 40 days in the airport, one of the airports in Russia would not cooperate with the Russians, and is still a perpetual fugitive. Whether you see his actions as a violation of law or a legitimate expression of conscience is up for you to decide. But what he did share to the world was an extensive reach. He would suggest more than overreach about the amount of information that's being gathered about us. And then just yesterday, I had one of our members uh, text me a copy of an Ottawa County uh, paper. And this is what the article says, written by John Tunnison. Ottawa County has created an email address to take complaints about people violating Governor Gretchen Whitmer's stay-at-home order during the coronavirus crisis. Many local police departments have advised people to call their non-emergency numbers, and it, it gives the number. It says, in Ottawa County, those with violation reports should email, and it tells us how to do it. Now, I I understand that depending on where you are in the spectrum of fear in regards to security and personal privacy, uh, my reflections on this action may not meet with your approval. And I'm somewhat hesitant to utilize this illustration because of that. I'm intensely interested that nobody comes down with the coronavirus who doesn't need to come down with it. And I believe a shelter-in-place or stay-at-home, stay-safe law is legitimate within the purview of the governor and is appropriate for trying to manage the crisis before the crisis runs over our medical capabilities. But once we turn to making operative people spying and complaining about each other in regards to what might be legitimate trips away from the house, it feels to me like we're moving backwards into a type of state that's more reminiscent of Nazi Germany and communist Russia than we are of the American society in which we live, in which there are certain rights that are granted to us. I'm glad this morning that in our Michigan law, we are granted the right to assemble without uh, repercussions even in the midst of this crisis. The assembling is very small, obviously, but religious liberty is at least afforded in there. But the idea that I'm being encouraged by someone in civil authority to report on my personal behaviors and actions feels like an extreme overreach. And yet here it is two counties away from where I reside. And if you wanna check it out, you can go straight to the uh, Grand Haven Public Safety webpage and you can figure out how to make sure uh, you're able to do those things you feel compelled to do. I understand that fear is a dynamic that's related to experience. There are some people whose experience is so different than someone else's, that all they know when they come up to crisis is fear, that there are others who have faced many crises and they're not afraid. Telling somebody not to be afraid without explaining to them how they can change their understanding about a circumstance or their way of thinking is a terrible waste of time. But to hear today, I'm, I'm here to dialogue with those that are watching online and are here in this sanctuary about how one could actually make a move away from the panic mode, and the self-preservation modes that seem to have taken so much of the world by storm. So this morning, let's look in God's word and let's see if indeed there might be a way to actually do more than survive, maybe even th- uh, thrive in a surveillance state. Take your Bibles this morning and open them up to the book of Second Kings. Second Kings chapter six. There's nothing new under the sun. As a matter of fact, while you're turning there, I want to read to you from a letter written in 1892. The author says, as we near the close of time, the opposing element will work in the same lines in which it has worked in times past. Every soul will be tested. Under persecution it will be made manifest just what banner every individual has chosen to stand under. That's what I'm more interested today. What banner are you standing under? What level of personal confidence and the ability to face a situation is residing in your heart and what tendency is there to move simply according to the fears that can overrun our lives. In 2 Kings chapter 6 we're looking at the story of Elijah as the one who came after Elijah. This is Elijah the one who began by pouring water on the hands and feet of his master Elijah. Elisha is now a mature prophet He's been ridiculed, he's been doubted, God is establishing his credibility, and part of that journey is going to involve a personal attack on the experience of Elijah. Second Kings chapter 6 beginning with verse 8, it says, now the king of Aram was warring against Israel, and he counseled with his servants, saying, in such and such a place shall my camp be. So let's make sure we understand what's going on. This is the high command of the Arameans and they're in dialogue with their commander-in-chief, the heads of the different branches of their armed services and they're determining where they're going to go as they make forays into the land of Israel. Verse 9, the man of God sent word to the king of Israel saying, Beware that you do not pass this place. For the Arameans are coming down there. The king of Israel sent to the place about which the man of God had told him and thus he warned him so that he guarded himself there more than once or twice. The important thing for us to notice at the beginning of this journey is that God has the ability to communicate with his servants on a level that far ex- out exceeds anything that humanity has ever known, even our current 21, 21st century technological society that we're in. Now, this ability for Elisha to know what the king was saying in private was very disconcerting to the king himself, that is, the king of Aram. Now, the heart of the king, verse 11, was enraged over this thing. And he called his servants and he said to them, will you tell me which of us is for the king of Israel? Now, I want us to understand right from the very beginning we're going to see a contrast between two types of people in this story. We're going to see those who can only see through the eyes of humanity. No sense that there's a battle on behind the scenes. The king of Aram is certainly in that category. We're going to find that Elisha's servant is still in that category. And in contradiction to the two of these individuals on both sides of this story is Elisha who sees beyond it. Verse 12, one of his servants said, No, my lord, O king, but Elisha, the prophet who is in Israel, tells the king of Israel the words that you speak in your bedroom. So he said, Go and see where he is that I may send and take him. And was told him, saying, Behold, he's in Dothan. So he sent horses and chariots and a great army there, and they came by night, and they surrounded the city. What I want us to notice also is that when we look at a situation like this, we see that no amount of human strategy is going to deliver in the scenario that's developing. Now, it seems a bit foolish to me to think that the king of Aram could expect that Elisha, who has known every other place that he was going, wouldn't have a sense that he'd eventually or maybe specifically know when he's coming for him. The city of Dothan is on a hill surrounded by a plain, so sneaking up in the middle of the night and surrounding the place wasn't that hard to do. Now when the attendant of the man of God had risen, verse 15, and gone out, behold, an army with horses and chariots was circling the city. And his servant said to him, Alas, my master, what shall we do? So he answered, Do not fear, for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. Then Elisha prayed, and he said, O Lord, I pray, open his eyes that he may see. And the Lord opened the servant's eyes, and he saw. And behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots, And fire all around Elijah. When they came down to him, Elisha prayed to the Lord and said, Strike this people with blindness, I pray. He struck them with blindness according to the word of Elisha. Then Elisha said to them, This is not the way, nor is this the city. Follow me, and I'll bring you to the man whom you seek. And he brought them to Samaria. When they come into Samaria, Elisha said, O Lord, open their eyes of these men that they may see. So the Lord opened their eyes, and they saw, and behold, they were in the midst of Samaria. Then the king of Israel, when he saw them, said to Elisha, My father, shall I kill them? Shall I kill them? He answered, He said, You should not kill them. Would you kill those you had taken captive with your sword and with your bow? Set bread and water before them, that they may eat and drink and go to their master. So he prepared a great feast for them, when they had eaten and drunk, he sent them away and he went to their master and the marauding bands of the Arameans did not come again into the land of Israel. There's several important elements that we need to understand as we experience the coronavirus pandemic and as we anticipate more. Now remember in Matthew chapter 24, Jesus talked about all kinds of things that were going to come upon the face of the earth. One of them did include pestilence. Those pestilences are a part of wars and rumors of war and earthquakes and famines in various places. But Jesus makes it clear in Matthew chapter 24 that the end is not yet. While this is a certain wake-up call to God's people and it's a reminder that civility and science as we know them are not enough to protect us from the very littlest thing, let alone the greatest, this is not the last birth pang before the deliverance that Jesus is bringing on this earth. This birth pang is to wake God's people up. It's to call us back to a posture of attentiveness. It's a moment to look at our priority systems. It's an opportunity to stare deep inside our own soul and see how much fear regulates our emotions and our actions in a time of stress. God is calling his people in the midst of this crisis to realize that what he has said will come, will come. But at this moment, it's important for us not to pander to the idea that because worse things are coming, there will be no more opportunities to take and proclaim the glory of who God is and lighten this world with the glory of the fourth and the first three angels' messages. When we look at this story, we have to realize that no amount of human strategy is going to deliver Elisha from this scenario. God's people are always at a disadvantage in this battle that plays out on the face of the planet. But we take the words of the psalmist who reminds us that if God be for us, who can be against us? But go back through the stories of the scriptures. Pay attention to how it's always worked out. It's Gideon with his 300 men. It's Jonathan and his armor bearer before a garrison of the Philistines. It's David before Goliath. It's Jehoshaphat with the choir. You go down through the list of the ages of scriptural history and you always see that God allows his people to come into moments of extremity for two things, to strengthen their faith and as a witness to the rest of the world that there's no God like the unseen God who's the living God. If you're not comfortable with the idea that you will always be on the disadvantaged side, except for the presence of Jesus, you can be certain that fear will only strengthen its grip upon you. And at some point in time in the future, the devil will shake all that can be loosened out of the experience of Christ's church and its glorious future. God is calling us right from the very moment in this very hour to realize that we will always be in a disadvantage. You might even say impossible situation. And some people listening to me right now may say, I'm already there. I don't have a job. I had no savings. I have no way of providing for myself. Oh, good news. Just a day ago, $2 trillion was set aside to meet our needs. Friends, I'm here to tell you the day will come when no human arm will be able to support our needs, your needs, my needs. In this moment, even when it looks for some like we don't have what we need, we're tempted to look at what we can see and say it won't work. Or we're tempted, not tempted, tempted, but invited to turn to the living Christ who's promised that he takes care of the flowers and the birds and that he will take care of us and say, Lord, from a human perspective, this looks pretty bleak. But I'm choosing, Lord, to recognize that that which is unseen is more real than that which is seen. And while all throughout Scripture it's looked like it's a total loss before it's a perfect success, I'm calling you now to strengthen my faith and help me not to come with negativity and faithfulness to this moment, but instead to come believing that you have provision for me like you've had provision for those in the past. Last week it was the widow of Zarephath. She had to make a decision. Would she put God first? Actually, in this moment in time, God's calling all kinds of people to make a renewed commitment to putting God back where he should be. Time to come together and pray. Time to give. Time to share my talents. Time to care about people. Time to serve. Time to be in the Word. Time for the first things and the best things. Not always the most urgent, but certainly the most important. If we don't see the limitations of a person who can only see by human sight, not by the eyes of faith, I don't know what's going to show it to us except there are chapters coming in our future in which no solution will be available except the provision of the living Christ in our ranks and meeting our needs. Disadvantaged? The underdog? Absolutely. But we can't go into self-preservation mode. We can't move into the dynamic of overreacting in a moment by some kind of extreme human exertion. This is a call to serious self-reflection and to prayer. And during the time of this coronavirus, while we're sequestered to our homes, while we have time to think about our budgets, our schedules, our kids, our future, our church, our devotional life, Christ is actually calling us to say, Start by letting me show you now what I can do so that when you come to a crisis of a greater and more colossal size, you're not afraid or intimidated. What do you see, friends? Twelve spies went into the promised land. Ten of them came back saying, This is impossible. Can you fathom how that happened? They themselves had walked through on dry ground. Not the sloppy, muddy, mucky bottom of the Red Sea, but the scripture says dry ground with a wall of water on the right and a wall of water on the left. They had already had food on the ground. They had already had water out of a rock. They had a cloud over them by day and a fire by night. They had seen the Egyptian army destroyed that wall of fire that separated them while they were crossing the Red Sea that became a wall of cloud. They had watched 10 plagues come off, and yet they still chose to only look through the eyes of self interest, which is not the eyes of faith. And thus they were at a moment when they should have said, God's got this. And instead they said, It's impossible. We're going to find, as we discussed in the Sabbath school class, that you'll have two groups at the end of time. One will have been spirit led in a personal and private way, not outside of community, not outside of accountability. And they're going to find their faith growing as God leads them to do things that look impossible. God, you want me to stretch and embrace this responsibility? God, you want me to give this? God, you want me to increase in my commitments of time? whatever it might be, God has to be the one that's preparing us for this moment. I have a friend who used to say, this ain't my first rodeo. And you know, pardon the poor English, but you know, if we come up to moments like this and it's our first rodeo, we're gonna be in trouble. There's an experience base that builds confidence. That experience base in encounter with a living Christ with a life of faithfulness in simplicity and obedience to the directions of the Spirit guided by the precepts and the principles of the Word will actually lead us to do some things that look impossible. I think about churches. How many churches have gathered around them men and women who have human experience in dealing with businesses and educational centers, et cetera. But the real pedigree for board membership is not that your human ability to strategize and your your litany of experiences covers all the bases. It's the fact that the Spirit is leading in your personal private life combined with those things that's giving you a real depth of experience with Christ. You put too many people together on a church board who aren't being led by the Holy Spirit or any other board. It could be a conference committee, a division committee, or a general conference committee. You put people on that board who have rich human experience, but their personal processing with a God who will stretch them out, call them to do a few things that seem beyond natural human ability. If they don't have that preparation, what you get is this cascading and this imploding sense of risk averseness and we end up doing only what we can see ourselves able to do. I pastored a church once of almost 400 members, probably 10,000 plus square feet under roof, large octagonal church, brand new nice facility or quite new at least when I got there but they had fallen on financially hard times. It was so bad that there came a moment in time when the sole vacuum cleaner in the church broke. I can remember the painful, agonizing dynamics of sitting in a board with 15 plus, maybe 20 people around our board tables and discussing for a half hour what we're going to do about the broken vacuum cleaner. Why? Because the church had found itself in a financially duressed moment. But the truth of the matter is, almost any person sitting at that board table could have gotten their checkbook out and written a check to replace the vacuum cleaner. I learned a few things in that moment. It became exceptionally important to me that I lead my leaders in an experience of understanding how to respect and honor the living Christ whose cause should not be dragged down by arguing over little things, by wringing our hands over little things. That church over a period of time went from asking can we afford it to is this what God wants us to do? And you wouldn't be surprised, friends, to know that the tithe tripled And their finances were in such an array to where they were moving from victory to victory and God was opening the windows of heaven for them. If ever there was a day in which we need leaders who are practicing at home, what we need to be practicing in God's house, in the church, it's today. But when you look at things only through the eyes of your own human experience, you're bound to see impossibilities. And sometimes you're going to see conundrums and difficulties that don't even appear to make sense for us to move towards to put our arms around to try to solve. God is calling us not to see only with the eyes of our human experience but to combine that with a sense of what he's done for us in the past and even more importantly who he is in the present and the victories he wants in the future. This is a spiritual battle in 2 Kings chapter 6. There's no sword drawn I know it's the age before bullets and bombs, but if it wasn't, there wouldn't be the first bullet fired or the first bomb going off. This is a spiritual battle. What's going on is that Satan would like to extinguish the witness of Israel. He's been working hard through Baal worship and other things. Mighty prophets have stood up and declared a call back to God. But in this dynamic, it's important for us to understand behind every difficult circumstance, the devil still has the same goal. He wants to put God's business out of business. He wants to take the church and make it moot. He wants to make it without credibility. God's people cooperate sometimes by looking only through the eyes of what they can see. But it's a spiritual battle. And it's a battle that is built around the dynamic of prophets. This prophet is worth more than the entire army of Israel. For he has saved many lives and the dignity of the nation, perhaps it's very survival, by simply taking divine directives from heaven and sharing them with the king. And Elisha has become so famous that all throughout Israel, everybody knows that it's God's intervention that's protecting for and providing for the nation. So much so to where the king says, All right, I want to know which one of you in my cabinet's a traitor. I want to know who the I want to know who the leaker is. They say, oh, king, you don't get it. Are you the only one that don't know? That doesn't know? Are you not aware that in Israel, there's a man who can tell you what you said in the privacy of your bedroom? And he says, all right, that's it. We're going to put an end to him. The prophet is the one that's been protecting. The prophet is the one that's been providing the information. The prophet is the one that's going to give direction when the When the city of Dothan is surrounded, the prophet is the one who is praying. Now, I need to ask everybody that's listening to me here today, how comfortable are you with the prophetic gift? Because where there is no vision, the people perish. I challenge you to study that verse in the book of Proverbs. It's not about someone having the strategic abilities of an Alan Malale at Ford. It's not about great strategic ability. It's actually a reference to the voice, the prophetic voice in the community of faith. And when there is no prophetic voice in the community of faith, people do their own thing and the spirituality of the collective whole goes down, down, down. The reality here is that the end time battle will be a prophetic battle as well. True prophets, false prophets. Think Jeremiah. Those true and false prophets exist today. There are prophets who will yet do, according to 1 Corinthians 14, which to edify, exhort, and console. And don't forget that in 1 Corinthians 14, Paul writes, I wish every one of you had the gift of prophecy. Very interesting statement for him to make. Every parent, every teacher, every pastor, every policeman, Every person with any element of authority is to speak the truth in love, to remind people what it's right to do and to comfort them when they're spiritually sorrowful for not having done so. But the gift of prophecy in its absence in our culture has created a place where people do what they feel like doing and the grave sin is to wound somebody's feelings. The prophetic voice is not so interested about how you feel in the now as how you'll feel in the future. The prophetic voice understands that the truth sets you free. But it has become vogue inside of Seventh-day Adventist circles to critique and denigrate the work of the prophet. Now I use that word singularly, although it ought to be used in the plural and collectively because as I said earlier, every parent is to have a prophetic role. They are to stand in the way of that generation they are discipling that's hell-bent on destroying themselves. And they are to fulfill a, a, a journey of discipleship that has consolation and encouragement, but certainly exhortation. We've decided that maintaining the harmony of relationships is the primary thing, so we've abandoned the prophetic voice. We should not be decrying the fact of political correctness of speech because it's nothing more than the new line of communication that has filled the vacancy and the void left behind by the absence of the prophetic voice in the pulpit and in the home and in the school. God is calling us back to the recognition of the primacy of the prophets. It begins in these stories here. And by the way, in each of these seven part of this series, one of my primary goals is to show you that there will be absolutely no way that you can save yourself in the future coming crisis. As a matter of fact, writing in the same letter in 1892, the writer states that while sin remains, the offense of the cross will never cease. And then this line caught my attention. Satan has a thousand masked batteries which will be opened upon the loyal commandment people, keeping people of God, to compel them to violate their conscience. Now, I don't want you to think about little devices that have lead and acid in them that give you energy. I want you to think about war. A battery is a place from which a cannon or some kind of heavy artillery is lobbing its shells to destroy the enemy. When she writes that Satan has a thousand massed batteries, in effect what she's saying is, we might feel like we're living in a benign moment. We might be living in a time when it doesn't appear to be any real conflict. Everything's just kind of pleasant, steady as she goes, easygoing. But there'll come a time when all of these camouflaged dynamics of society, that have been carefully woven together like a net, including a surveillance state, be it capitalistic surveillance now, easily turned into compulsory surveillance later. A thousand mass batteries, and when the covers are pulled off these batteries and the volleys are taking place, God himself will have to shield us, for there will be no saving ourselves at any level or in any way. As a matter of fact, the only real preparation for the time of the end is spiritual preparation. It's actually the preparation that comes from taking a posture that stretches me out in the name of the lost human race who needs to know the glory of a God who would give himself to ignominy, to all kinds of defilement and apparent defeat in order to save us from eternal loss. The spiritual preparation of our lives is the growing of this relationship and nothing can be more clear about this narrative than the fact that the prophet is at the center of the storyline. He has the ability to undo the artifices of the evil one, and he has the ability to bring confidence and assurance to the heart of those that are trembling and full of fear. More than that, before this story is over, God will convert in some measure a heathen nation to the knowledge of his superiority. But when we live only by sight, when we allow human injury ingen- Ingenuity, when we allow the pedigree of professional training to to go beyond and above the dynamic of a spiritual dependence upon God, they're not warring against each other. But if there's one that is to supersede, it is the directive of the Spirit that told Jehoshaphat, put the choir out in front. These kinds of dynamics are taking the wisdom of man and making nothing of it and what God is directing appears to be foolish, but it is to his honor and his glory, a thousand massed batteries. So how are you with the prophet, friends? How are you with the prophetic role? I'm talking about two different things now. I'm talking about the fact that this church was built upon an extensive searching of the scriptures, but indeed there was a prophetic hand guiding the journey so that we should find ourselves walking the path of life on the road to heaven. How often and how, how, how readily do you receive a prophetic word in your life? It could be from a spouse. It could be for out of a message like this. It could be from a child actually. It could be to a child. The Bible's very clear that the voice of rebuke is the voice of the prophet. And that voice of rebuke, since our hearts so naturally are prone to go the wrong way, is actually a gospel warning. But when we refuse to listen, and when our sense of our own understanding supersedes the divine impress of God in the prophetic voice, we find ourselves on very, very dangerous ground. Are you uncomfortable being associated with a prophet? I can tell you absolutely beyond the shadow of a doubt, there's some that are. But this Seventh-day Adventist church believes that God's remnant people are marked by the prophetic gift. It's not just that God exhibited it in a manifest way upon the life of a young woman in the early 1800s. It's that God himself is guiding in the overall spirit of the church because it's dedicated to truth as it is in Jesus. They keep the commandments of God, and they have the testimony of Jesus, which John will declare or write down at the declaration of the angel in Revelation 19.10. That is the spirit of prophecy. The spirit of prophecy is accompanied by and announced by prophets. It's announced in the power of the prophets. As a matter of fact, as we saw last Sabbath, that before the great and terrible day of God, before that day of sifting and burning, Malachi declares that Elijah will come. Jesus affirmed it as well. The prophetic work on Mount Carmel where there was a showdown between the false and the true prophets is what we're trending towards now. And if we're uncomfortable with the gift of prophecy and the enactment of the prophetic gift in our lives, we're going to find ourselves in deep trouble because accepting prophecy establishes us and prospers us. What is a prophet? A prophet's a spiritual warrior, it's a manifestation in an unseen battle. A prophet in this situation that was announcing private things to the king of Israel. The question I think we need to ask ourselves is this Was he surprised that they came? He certainly didn't wake up early. That was his attaché, and he walked outside, and when he saw the city surrounded, he was in terrible distress. Don't you think that God very well could have told Elisha they were coming, and don't you think Elisha could have run? The question we are to ask ourselves is, should Elisha have run? clearly by the outcome of the story we see that God brings peace between the two nations and at some level a lot of serious thinking we don't know how many people in the end will have come to worship the true God because of this experience Elisha could have told his friend his attendant that they were coming but he didn't do that did he why not in the same way that God doesn't tell us all the difficult things that are coming God allows us to have a moment in which we get to choose which way we're turning. Are we turning to the solution in Christ or are we turning to fear and foreboding? Indeed, this partner in ministry has a normal experience. It's normal for us to be afraid. As a matter of fact, we have to determine whether or not the fear that we're experiencing is actually legitimate and to what degree because there is a certain amount of fear in the human experience that preserves oneself. The problem is, is that when we allow that fear to direct our rational thinking, when it's no longer a rational fear. So here this man is saying, what are we going to do? Where are we going to go? Elisha has a prayer. He says, Lord, open the eyes. Open his eyes. A week or two ago, I was sitting in the committee room watching a children's program that was being, uh, that had just been filmed with one of our our leaders, Michelle Coy. And as she was presenting the story about Elisha in Dothan, I was struck by the fact of this lineage of chariots of fire. So here we have this story of Elijah who is taken to heaven in a chariot of fire. And wouldn't you know it, all around the city of Dothan are all these Arameans and all around them are these chariots of fire. And around Elisha himself, a wall of fire. And you see this, this moving continuity of God's provision. Tell me what line of defense could be better. Elisha is himself safe and secure in the protective provisions of Jesus. And Elisha is praying, give my servant the ability to see. This may be the main takeaway out of this divine dialogue between the minister and his mentoree. God is saying to us as he's saying to this man, I'd like to show you more than you can currently see. Do you want to see it? The problem is with seeing more than we currently see in regards to the future and the unseen is that there are things in our own lives God wants to show us. And the same question comes to us. Could I show you something about yourself? Peter said no on the night before Christ's crucifixion. But Jesus didn't back away from it. I won't deny you, Peter said. Jesus said you will. And yet this element of being willing to see whatever God wants to show us might be the door opener for seeing the things that would comfort us as well. Not too long in the future, we know from the prophetic annals, from the recordings of the apocalypse, that this world's going to go through much more than it's going through right now. So, what I want to ask all those that are watching me right now who are Seventh day Adventists, why is it that we have so many Seventh day Adventists that are afraid of the time of trouble, but they're not afraid that people won't know there's a refuge in the midst of the time of trouble? How is it that we're so afraid that we could actually be motivated to participate like everybody else in clawing our ways to the top of the preservation pack, whether it's toilet paper? which is kind of hard for me to fathom, or whether it's beans and rice, how is it that we could find ourselves moving just like everybody else when really we ought to be moving very much unlike everybody else. Oh, it's not wrong to have some provision for hard times. Probably most of us should realize after this that supply chains are fragile, and we should probably keep a little bit more in the house. Years ago, they had to save up what they had from their fields to make it through to the whole next year. So obviously setting something aside is not an act of faithlessness. But why is it that the Seventh-day Adventist church is reduced to fearfulness and foreboding, to impotence and inaction at a time in which the world most of all needs our action? There are people who are afraid because they've put the roots of their life down into the great Western dream, American dream, whatever you want to call it. God is actually calling us to live very simple and very focused lives so that those who don't know there's a living Christ and that he himself is our refuge, our refuge, they need to understand there's a God who could actually be loved and not run to for the fears of an eternal burning hellfire, but race towards for the sense that he will be a protection and a provision around all of those who cast their plight into his heart and arms. God is calling us not to be uh, debilitated by the sense that the future will be difficult, but actually to be motivated for the sense of those for whom it will be absolutely untenable and and beyond the ability to endure without a living Christ in their heart and without a living communion with those of God's people. I came across an interesting quote in a book entitled Last Day Events. It's time for us to start doing what this quote says. Let those who desire to be refreshed in mind and instructed in the truth study the history of the early church during and immediately following the day of Pentecost. Study carefully in the book of Acts the experience of Paul and the other apostles for God's people in our day must pass through similar experiences. Friends, do you need to get afraid? Or do we need to get a grip on what God's going to do for his people in a greater measure than he did 2,000 years ago? The fact of the matter is this, that when Paul was in the Philippian jail with Silas, he was singing in the middle of the night. In the middle of the same night, the Holy Spirit came down, the angels, whatever the instrumentality was, and grabbed onto the foundations of the prison and shook them so hard that every shackle came open and every door was no longer bound by a lock. The truth of the matter is, when Peter was in prison one night, the angel would come, and even though there were 16 soldiers between him and freedom, every hinged door would open without creaking, every lock would turn without a key, And God took his man out of the prison in silence and then sent him to a prayer meeting so they could know their prayers had been answered and they were heard. God is able to do exceedingly abundantly above what we can ask or think. And instead of looking with foreboding to the future, we ought to be refreshing our minds by studying what God did for the early church. Peter could be in a prison one night, sleeping, unafraid, that James has already had his head lifted by the executioner's axe. God has provision for his people, and we ought to realize that we ought to be recognizing there's an unseen host of heavenly angels that are waiting to cooperate with us in what we are called to do, entrusted with more than any other Reformation church has ever been given to proclaim the glory of a refuge in a time, a shelter in a time of storm. God does not intend that we be caught up in the pleasures of this life, the comforts of this day and age. And for the economic disadvantages that are upon us, as well as the restrictions of movement, as well as the fear of disease, God is reminding us that our life must be hid in Christ, that he himself is our shelter in the time of storm. In Isaiah chapter four, if you'll turn there with me in closing, Isaiah records in the imagery of the Exodus A promise that is for the end of times. Now, Israel forfeited its special relationship with God as a nation. God, however, went forward with those who would still, by faith, become sons and daughters of Abraham. If you don't understand that, you're not going to agree with where I'm going with this text. But if you understand that when Stephen was stoned in the 490 years of Daniel 9 came to an end, then you realize that probation for Israel as a national witness ended. And now the, ex- the exclamation of God's glory through an international witness through the church, those who are Israelites are not Israelites in the flesh, but they're Israelites circumcised of heart, according to Paul. This Israel is yet to experience, the church is yet to experience the promises made to the literal nation. And This promise here, according to the pen of Ellen White, is for those who will go through the end of time, beginning in Isaiah chapter 4, verse 4. When the Lord has washed away the filth of the daughters of Zion and purged the bloodshed of Jerusalem from her midst by the spirit of judgment and the spirit of burning... In other words, there's going to be a work of tremendous reform done inside the church. Then the Lord will create over the whole area of Mount Zion and over her assemblings a cloud by day, even smoke, and the brightness of a flaming fire by night, for over all the glory will be a canopy. There will be a shelter to give shade from the heat by day and a refuge and a protection from the storm and the rain. Do you know, friends, that all of the stories in the Bible are all faith-based foundations to the edifice of faith that we're to be building. And there is no story in all of the Old Testament and New Testament scripture from which we should expect less by way of provision for God as he wraps up the story of grace. When the Israelites were coming out of Egypt and Pharaoh was hot on their trail, the pillar of cloud came down and separated the Israelites from the armies of Egypt. When it became dark, the cloud changed into a fire. When they marched across that Red Sea, the cloud was above them in the day and the fire in the night. And while their crossing was primarily in the dark, it must have been the fire illuminating the wall of water on the right and the wall of water on the left and the dusty, dirty path through the bottom of this part of the ocean. What we need to know as we go forward in the future is for those whose faith is simple enough, And for those whose life is surrendered in obedience to the directions of the Holy Spirit in a living relationship with Christ in his word as the living word, God is going to do even more than he's done in the past. God is going to provide for his people in a miraculous way. It will be a surveillance state beyond which anyone has ever dreamed. Never in the face of human history, never in the annals of the past will there have been the ability for Satan to cinch his hangman's noose tighter than he will have at the end of time. But it won't succeed in destroying the faith and the existence of God's people for he will still Stand by their side and provide as he has in ages past. The question is, will we have the faith because we've exercised it now? Will we have the confidence because we've followed him in the moment? Will we move forward collectively and individually letting Christ mark out the way, knowing that we're going to be stretched out, knowing that our faith is going to be tested? For some, the answer will be no. They're going to live by sight. They don't want to be bothered with the inconvenience of conviction in the Holy Spirit. They don't want to be put in a position that stretches them out and makes them afraid. I'll tell you, you can't become unafraid without having to face and face off with those things that make you afraid. So if financial security is everything for you, be certain, friends, like the rich young ruler. Jesus is going to ask more of you there. If family security is everything to you, be sure, friends, that Christ at that moment is going to allow you to claim him as the first and foremost member of the family, the greatest filial tie. Be sure, friends, if somehow uh, social networking or some other kind of security, whether it be in material acquisitions, be certain Christ is going to ask you to offer those up on behalf of his work and for those who have need. Be certain, friends, in the end, every human support will be removed, and the only thing you'll be left with is Christ as the Old Testament scriptures say, bearing his righteous right hand to show himself strong to save his people. Yes, indeed, Christ alone is the shelter in the time of storm. Christ alone will be peace in the midst of, Of trauma and chaos Christ is enough for this moment the question is when we're done with this moment will Christ be the singular focus of our life and will his church be called in in readiness waiting to do what perhaps six decades of affluence and abundant provision has lulled us away from doing the time is now we're gonna make it through this let's keep praying for those who are sick and those who are serving the sick Let's keep praying for those who are flying people home back to their original countries. Let's be praying for those who are stocking the shelves. Let's be praying for every truck driver. Let's be praying for every worried mother or father who's lost their job. Let's be doing more than praying. Let's be passing out words of encouragement and financial assistance. May God's people be the most generous of all on the face of the planet. But let's not be afraid. There is a survival state There is a survival in a surveillance state that's coming, but it won't be by any human strategizing. Sure, you can throw out your SIM card. You can even run over your cell phone. It doesn't matter, friends. We live in an age where a drone could drop down and stare right into your windows and deliver a lethal dose of something. Never has has the human race been so liable to abuse of power as it is now. That means never should we be so dependent upon the power of the present Christ. Amen.